O Father in heaven, we thank you you've revealed your truth in history, and we thank you that you've granted your Holy Spirit to work within us to show us the meaning of this. And we pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, that you will um, encourage us tonight, speak to us, warn us, uh, Lord, uh, establish us in your word and in your testimonies. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm continuing on this occasional uh, series of sermons on the themes of Isaiah. I'm doing roughly once a month, but saying I'm going to do two in a row uh, this week and next week. And I'm really looking at an important aspect of every prophet, but particularly the prophet Isaiah, which is looking at what today we might call a sworn witness statement, you know, a solemn declaration of truth, which, of course, you know, people, when they go into court, um, they often testify verbally, and they have to, you know, take an oath to that effect. Uh, But sometimes, of course, you can make an affidavit out. You can actually make a, a sworn statement in writing. And one of the aspects of this word testimony that we are, uh, we've been looking at earlier on in the service is this idea that God has himself, if you like, given a, a series of solemn declarations to this world that can be trusted, that are utterly reliable, that are the real truth, um, which we can read in scripture in various forms, sometimes in the forms of laws, sometimes in the form of a narrative history, examples in people's lives, sometimes in poetry and in love poetry. But these things, the the Bible says of itself, are things revealed by God uh, and of, of which he has committed himself to its truth. You see, to a lot of people, God is just a, well, if there is a God, he's, he's some vague abstraction way out there. Maybe at the, uh, at the end result of a whole load of mathematical equations, a mathematician or a physicist may come to the conclusion, there's a God. And in fact, the vast majority of scientists over the past hundred years that have won the Nobel Peace Prize have come to that conclusion. That's a, a little known fact, but it is a fact that most, most of the great scientists have actually come uh, to a belief in a, a creator. Of, I mean, I'm talking here about Nobel Prize win, was it winning scientists. So I can't talk for uh, uh, you know, others, or for that matter, the minority of atheists, the militant atheists that have won the Nobel Prize. But the thing is this, that a, a scientist or a mathematician may come to the conclusion, yes, there's something there, a concept at the end of my uh, lengthy set of uh, mathematical uh, or, or, or philosophical arguments. But the Bible says God isn't just dealing with abstractions. God is a living God who is actually dealing with our lives and our deaths. He's there when we're born and he's there when we die. And actually he's going to be there when we pass into eternity. And it is incredibly important that we have spiritual life. That we are delivered from selfish darkness, evil and the devil's work. And we're delivered into the kingdom of his beloved son. Full of love and Our many sins are forgiven, and we're given this thing called salvation. Now, the Bible tells us that the the, the Bible consists in, as I've said, narratives, history, poetry, laws, all kinds of things which centrally come down to God's solemn declaration in Jesus Christ that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through 
him, but through me, Jesus actually said. And uh, as Brian uh, was pointing about this word, amen, what did Jesus say as he, as he made this declaration? Amen, amen, truly, truly, I say to you that uh, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And uh, basically, um, we see that in this particular passage of Isaiah, we have um, Isaiah claiming that uh, a particular incident uh, it was a solemn witness statement from God on what was going to happen. And it contained both a threat, but it also contained, as we see later on, a promise in this passage, which when we look at this passage in much more detail next week. Uh, you'll see it starts off, um, take a large tablet and write on it in the common characters. Now, what we're talking about is that Isaiah was given an instruction by God to take a notice board and write on it. Now, you might say, oh, you know, that doesn't make much sense, does it? You know, if you, if you know nothing, actually, of archaeology, you might think, oh, that's been made up. You know, people don't write notice boards. Well, actually, uh, we know that in 7, uh, I think it's 737 B.C., um, the, the Assyrians, uh, it was found uh, in part of the Assyrian Empire, a well full of old notice boards that had been thrown down this well, presumably after the Assyrians had actually captured the particular city. And these notice boards, five, six feet high, and on, in one of them there's an inscription which contained actually a declaration from one particular, one particular king. So what we're told here is something that actually happened. Isaiah, having been given a message from God, wrote it so that in, a, in the common language of the day and in a way, in a form of writing that could be read by those who were literate, which there are many people who were literate in those days, um, and he was, he was told to, to have this affidavit, if you like, solemnly witnessed, and he's asked to, uh, to take uh, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberachiah to witness this fact that, that Isaiah was making this statement. And uh, the statement was strange. It was Mahashalal Hashbaz. We'll explain what that means in a minute. But then, uh, Isaiah was then told, having made this declaration, that when his wife was pregnant, he was to call the, the baby by that name. Now, what was the meaning of that name? Well, the meaning of the name was, I'm, now I'm paraphrasing it, was the invader is swiftly coming. There's a, there's someone's going to come and, 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 and take everything away. It's happening quickly. It's going to happen soon. And in fact, of course, it was a reference to the invasion of the Assyrian Empire, which, uh, in fact, uh, the rest of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 8 uh, actually describes. And the destruction of, of the southern kingdom's enemies that were, um, had been afflicting them up to that point. And there's also a promise of hope. Um, and uh, basically, um, I want us to notice that after being given this prophecy, uh, if you want to turn to 8.16, otherwise just listen to what I say, I'll repeat it again. He's told, bind up the testimony, seal it, or I, I say he's told, Isaiah uh, instructs his disciples and uh, uh, under the inspiration of God, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope 
in him. Now, it's very telling that um, the Hebrew word that, um, that is used is testimony, bind up the testimony and seal the Torah, the instruction, the law among my disciples. Some of you may know that the, uh, the, the Jewish people call the first five books of the Old Testament the Torah, the instruction, the teaching of Moses. And uh, here, clearly, what, um, what Isaiah is, is, is being told by God to do and what he tells his disciples to do is this, is that as God gives his teaching, has his instructions, his laws, his, uh, his uh, instructions for the future, these are to be sealed. Now, they're not only to be sealed in a scroll, which possibly may have been a reference to, but they're to be sealed in the hearts of his disciples. And uh, as we'll see next week, uh, this testimony, which uh, is, uh, firstly, was a testimony of destruction, that there was a destruction to come upon uh, the lands that had been oppressing uh, uh, Judah, but also there's a promise of hope. And that, of course, is the wonderful thing about the nature of the Bible. You see, when we read the Bible, we can actually feel condemned. We can, if you read the Ten Commandments, as Henry was referring to this morning, and when we, when we read that you shall not murder, and then Jesus explains that means that if we're, in, if we're in the zone of any hatred, we're in the zone of murder. And as Henry explained very helpfully this morning, if basically, as it says in 1 John, if we're not abiding in love for everybody, if we're not filled with love, then we're living in the zone of murder. We're not just, oh, I'm just a normal person, I'm an average person. No, the Bible says this. If love isn't filling your heart for everybody, if there's bitterness, hatred, revenge, if there's, uh, 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 you know, that, that, all of these feelings bubbling over, you're living in the zone of murder. And you may not be violent, as Henry was saying this morning, out you know, outwardly, but inside that's the mess that you're in. Now, when we read scripture and then we look at our lives and we assess, well, what am I really like? And we think, what a wretched person I really am. We might think, well, this is total condemnation. Well, it is condemnation, but at the same time, God has given this instruction because his heart is full of love because he knows that the way that we get rescued from our sins, from our darkness, is firstly getting awakened to what a mess we're in. And when we become alive to the mess we're in, we then call out, Lord, what can I do to be saved? And then we find this, of course, the wonderful message that Christ died on the cross for sinful people to deliver people from the darkness, not because they deserved it, because he loves us. And because he loves us and delivers us, we can... We, we, we can, when trusting in him, then be flooded with new life. We can have uh, uh, our guilt washed away. We can be confident in the presence of God that we are forgiven, we're clean, we're his children. And then he gives us the power to put that love into action, to become people that are living a life of love. So the, so the, the thing is this, is that, the commands in the Bible, the Old Testament uh, seeming threats 
Actually, yeah, they are, because they're telling the truth. But they're actually there in itself as a mercy, because this is God's way of waking people up to their need of a saviour and to coming uh, to Jesus Christ. Now, uh, actually, I just want to uh, um, say a, a testimony, if you like, from, uh, from one other prophet living a bit later than Isaiah, a generation or two later. But Jeremiah um, was given this testimony from God. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far away from me and went away after worthlessness and became worthless? And uh, that's Jeremiah 2.5. And he goes on in 2.31 to say this. Have I been a wilderness to you, Israel? Have I been a land of darkness to you? Why then do my people say, we're free, we're no, we're no longer going to more come to you? In other words, God says to us human beings, not just the Jewish people, but all people on planet Earth, why? Why have you turned away from me, the source of love? I've given you a beautiful universe, a beautiful world, and you've destroyed it. You are in the middle of destroying it with wars and all kinds of evils. I've given you a, a lovely life, but instead of living a life of, of love and joy and kindness and being a, a center of peace, you've just lived selfishly. Why? Why have you done this to me who provide you with everything? Why do you treat me as though I, was, as though I deserved your contempt when indeed... We ourselves are the ones who deserve contempt. Well, God makes his appeal and he testifies to his amazing grace and kindness to you and to me that we should respond to his love. And uh, I just say, anybody listening online might not yet be a believer. Well, think about what Christ has done and respond tonight. Don't leave it, you know, till, till you think you're ready for it. Just receive him tonight. Now, with that background, I just want to, uh, talking about Isaiah, I'm going to be finishing talking about this passage in more detail next week, but I want to talk about this general, uh, this general um, idea of the testimonies of God. We've seen in verse 16 of chapter 8, it says, Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching, seal the Torah amongst my disciples. Now, okay, let's define what we mean by testimonies. Amongst Christians and myself, for most of my life, whenever we talk about testimonies, we usually mean kind of a, an autobiographical sketch, a short autobiography of ourselves, how we became a Christian, uh, or the way God has worked in our life. But as I've pointed out, the word used in, in Scripture is much more precise than that popular way, the general way we talk about giving a testimony. It's to do with these, an idea of a solemn sworn statement given in, in, uh, in trials. Um, we know that, uh, that uh, for instance, uh, the, the Jewish people used to have their, uh, their trials at the city gates, and people who were, uh, had a case against another person would bring forth their witnesses who had to take a solemn declaration, you know, that this is the truth, and in fact, uh, the Hebrew uh, legal system was such that you had to have at least two witnesses who were prepared to stand up and publicly proclaim this is the absolute truth of utmost seriousness. And of course, likewise with defense witnesses. Now, 
when the Bible is talking about the testimonies of God, it, it, it's grounded in this idea of the solemn seriousness of these declarations that contain promises and, and, uh, uh, and threats and, and also um, encouragements. Um, but I, I, could, I could say that it, it, one aspect of it, it's like, almost like a divine CV. Now, you might know that a CV is a, a, a something which you give for your job, curriculum vitae. Uh, which literally means, from Latin, the course of your life. And when you go uh, for a job, you write out, and, and, and the implication is it's true, although a lot of people fake their, 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 their CVs and try to blag their employers you know, into believing that they're something they're not. But a CV is meant to present you know, the history of your employment and of your education. And... Uh, in doing so, we're recommending ourselves to the employer. Now, the Bible contains, if you like, an as one aspect of, of the testimonies of God in the Bible. It is God's CV. It contains the records of the ways he's worked in history. Now, here we come across again the, you know, the kind of... Uh, what's the word? You know, the, 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 the unbeliever that simply... I'm not going to believe no matter what you say. You know, like, you warn someone that there's, there's a, that, that, you know, that the, the um, scaffolding over their head is going to fall on their head. I'm not going to believe that no matter what you say, you know. <laughs> and uh, uh, you'll, you'll meet believers and say, I don't care, the Bible's all rubbish. And then you try to say, well, why? Whoa, it's been disproved. And then you show, and you can show, in thousands of cases how the Bible has been verified by archaeology. And I say, oh, I still don't believe. Well, why? Because they're not looking actually at evidence. They're maintaining their prejudices against, um, against uh, the, the, the person who comes to us in the Bible. But the Bible presents uh, the Lord as showing through the Bible his proof and evidence of the way he has been working in, in, uh, in this world that he has made. You might say, well... Why has gone, gone to so much trouble all these thousands of years of history? Why has he gone to all this? Well, the answer is, well, because he loves us. Because he knows that we're in a world of six billion people. There's going to be countless numbers of people that are going to try to pick holes in, in uh, any truth they hear. So God is, it was, it was necessary for the Lord to present absolutely mountains of evidence of the truthfulness of the person that he is. And that's what we've got in the Bible. And that's why the testimonies, the, uh, the CV in the, uh, in the Bible is so extensive and also why it is such a wonderful thing to meditate upon. And if you are a Christian and a believer, that is why Psalm 119 starts to come alive when you're thinking about delighting in how God has shown himself in history in, in, uh, in the Bible. Um, I've mentioned already about um, Psalm 119. Um, one fallacy that people often have got into, and I must admit for years I, I kind of shared with, with others about Psalm 119, was that basically it was only talking about the laws, the itemized laws of the Pentateuch. And I often used to wonder, well, how do you delight you know, in this long list of laws about uh, what you should and shouldn't do on a, on a on the Sabbath and uh, various rules and regulations about marriage and, uh, and non-marriage and so on and so forth. How, how do you delight in those, in those 
lists of rules? Well, of course, the answer is that it's not just talking about the rules of the Old Testament. When Psalm 119 is not just saying, well, I'm, I just love to meditate about Sabbath rules, about how far you move your bed on the, on a, on a, on the Sabbath day and so on. No. He's talking about all of the ways in which in the first five books of the Bible, God has shown himself and given us instructions and teaching. If we uh, think of something that um, Paul said in the Acts of the Apostles when he, he faced a, a mob of unruly pagans who wanted to kill him. Why? Well, actually, he'd done a miracle, and uh, they first called him um, Zeus, or actually the, and, and the messenger of the gods, um, Barnabas. And, uh, but then when he, he told them, you know, no, no they, they then turned on him. But he said to them, God has not left himself without testimony, without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So Paul was kind of saying, well, there's the, the, the testimony of God's existence to you is found in the here and now. You're alive. You're, you've got food. You've got drink. You've got air in your brains. You actually have gladness in your life and happiness in your life. But God, in, in, the, in the Old Testament, has given us abundant evidence, not only of his existence, but of his goodness, of his kindness. When Paul is uh, talking about the Jewish people, his own people, because Paul was a proud Jewish man, um, uh, and he was, he was proud of his heritage, he, he said, well, the Israelites... The majority, at the moment, he said, have turned away from their Messiah. But don't despise them. Don't despise the Jewish people. God doesn't despise them. To them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And to them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to to human nature is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Now, notice that Paul elaborates in that in Romans 9, verse 4, the aspects of the Pentateuch, of the, the, the children of Israel being saved out of Egypt, of being adopted as God's children, of having the, the, the Shekinah glory follow them in the wilderness, that invisible uh, indication that God was surrounding them. They had the covenants, written, written treaties that were made out between God and man. They were given the law. They had the elaborate worship of both the, the, of the tabernacle and the temple. They had all of these promises given to them. They had all of the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and uh, Moses and all of the other the historical figures up to the time of Moses. And all of these testimonies... All of these things were given that they might actually uh, come to know Jesus Christ. Well, of course, for those of us who are believers in Jesus, who may not be Jewish, we still have these glorious and wonderful things to think about in our life. And I just want to finish on this. Now, I'm going to give you five minutes in finishing. I just want you to uh, ask yourself, how much do you meditate upon these wonderful uh, pictures that are in the Old Testament, the testimonies to God's goodness. Now, 
those of you who are Sunday school teachers will be doing it quite a lot, actually, because probably the only, um, the only faculty in the church where we regularly make a habit, really, of going through these Old Testament stories um, systematically uh, in a short period of time is actually Sunday school. And in Sunday school, uh, children learn about Noah's Ark and Isaac uh, and the Passover lamb and uh, the, the, the serpent that was made of metal and the, the scapegoat. Now, those are, are five things that are considered by the vast majority of Christians to be absolute clear indications of, the, of what Jesus Christ was, was going to do. And they're found in the Pentateuch. The story of the ark, when um, uh, the, the, the known world was flooded at the time of Noah, and everyone, everyone was, uh, uh, was put in a situation, am I, am I going to be prepared to, to, to escape in an ark, or am I just going to chance it? And the Bible tells us that becoming, coming to Christ is very similar to that situation. You see that Actually, we may not realize it, but in this world, we are drowning in our sins. We don't realize it. We're breathing in every day. We're living a selfish life. We're, we're, we're thinking uh, with hostility sometimes to God, hostility to other people. We're self-centered. We're proud. We're rebellious. But we don't realize it, but our souls are actually drowning. They're drowning slowly, but they're drowning certainly. There's a way of escaping. And how do we escape? By trusting in Christ. He, he will pull us out of this, drought, of, this, of this torrent of sin in our lives and give us new life. Um, in the story of Isaac, we know, of course, that Abraham was told to sacrifice his son. Which, of course, is forbidden in the Old Testament. Well, of course, God had no intention that Abraham should actually sacrifice his son. He was testing him to see how much he was prepared to give up. And Abraham was prepared to, in fact... Uh, sacrifice his own son, which to us as 21st century people it seems barbaric and terrible. How could he do that? Well, God never intended him to actually sacrifice his son, but he was seeing uh, whether he followed the customs of his day. Because in those days, 3000 BC, uh, 1800 BC actually to be more precise, it was quite common to sacrifice your children. So, and in the culture where Abraham came from, Ur of the Chaldees, um, it, uh, the Sumerian culture, it was, a, it was a fact of life that people used to have human sacrifice. So the thing is that the story itself it sh is, on one level, it's showing us how much Abraham was prepared to trust in God. But the second thing is this. It shows us how much God loved us. Because Abraham did not have to sacrifice his son but God did have to sacrifice Jesus Christ, his beloved son, to save you and to save me. And that shows how much he loves us. His own, only begotten son, who had been with him from eternity, took on a, the DNA of a human person. His personality, the personality of the son of God, was downloaded into a finite human brain and body. And then suffered, both in body and in his, his soul, for me and you, that our sins might be forgiven and we might be given a new life. Now, I could go on. I said I was going to be five minutes, so I think I've only got a minute left. As we go through the Old Testament types, the 
the Passover, the brazen serpent, the scapegoat, and then go more and more intricately into the stories in the Old Testament in those first five books of the Bible, we indeed find fantastic grounds for meditation, enriching our lives, making us more appreciative of the way that God has worked. And uh, I, I will finish on the, just these, these two things. Abraham was crafted by God, was molded by God, so that he was able to make a decision to leave his hometown, Ur of the Chaldees, and to go into the unknown. Well, that's what it is when, when, when you become a believer. If you want to trust in Christ, you've got to understand, no, you can't carry on the same old way. You have to leave your old past behind. And it's going to be a complete change. I mean, you may stay in the same job, you may wear the same clothes, you may have the same friends, but you are becoming a completely different person. And in fact, your friends may turn on you, may dislike you. Your, your life may change uh, radically because you decided to go out into that unknown future with Jesus Christ as your savior. It says of, uh, in Hebrews, it says, by faith Abraham obeyed God when he was called out to a place he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, the, the, another person that's found, of course, in uh, the Pentateuch, in, in the first five books of the Bible, is Moses himself. And it says in Hebrews, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused uh, to, uh, to take his position as, as one of the, uh, of the princes of Egypt. And he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now that again is the challenge to those who are thinking about becoming a Christian. What are you going to do? Are you going to uh, enjoy the fleeting pleasures this life gives? Or are you going to actually go for, the, go for broke with the most important relationship, not just in this life, but for eternity? And maybe you'll be despised maybe you'll lose out as far as the world is concerned but you will consider the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt now that of course is is what Jesus said what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world this fleeting world that passes away so quickly but loses his soul what does it gain does it profit whereas trusting in Christ you have Eternal life, abundant life. May, may the Lord help us indeed to, um, to turn to the Lord and trust him tonight. And as we go on as Christians, to meditate on these precious testimonies that we find. These sworn declarations, these, this record um, which has been bound up and handed down over the years. Uh, giving us the revelation of God's character in practice in our lives. So let's now just pray briefly. Oh, Father in heaven, we do thank you indeed. You have uh, revealed yourself reliably to us in the Bible. And we thank you for these, these, uh, these characters from whom which we can learn at any stage in our life. Important lessons about our day-to-day -day living. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you will uh, help us, Lord, uh, to uh, be following uh, your teaching and your instruction day by day. In Jesus' name, amen.